So if you have a Bible, we'll be in Matthew chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. Okay, here we go. Yeah, so we've been talking about the uh, 14 generations, the generations between the return of the exiles and the coming of Christ and all that God was doing during that time. He was silent as far as Revelation went. But as we have seen, he was quite busy. And we looked at some interesting stories, like the, that of uh, Pentecost and all of those believers who came to this provincial backwater of Rome to worship a local deity, and how strange that was. Right? There were people from every nation there. But, but at the beginning of the, the gospel, there is a likewise weird story about the Magi, who are these men who came from afar. And uh, it's one of those jokes that I like, right? It's one of those uh, questions I like to ask. How many, how many magi were there? Bible trivia. Everyone always says three. There's actually, we have no idea how many. It's like how many animals were, went on the ark of each kind? Well, everyone says two, but there's actually seven of clean, two of the unclean. So this is one of those stories that's full of, I think, confusion. There's a lot of weird, right? If you go down to Target right now, we could buy some, some Christmas books about the Magi, and it's full of lies. <laughs> but there, there it is, part of our sentimental Christmas cards and stories. and It's funny. So I, I think we're, this is going to be helpful to us to look at this story and actually find out who are these people, why did they come so far, and what effect did they have on Israel. So before we begin, let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the Magi. We thank you. For the Lord Jesus, we thank you this Christmas tide that you are indeed not silent, that you are not distant, but you are here with us and you are speaking to us even now through your word. And I pray that we would store it up in our hearts, that we would be changed by it, that we would be more obedient to it, Lord, and to you and in this coming year that we would seek to glorify you, seek to please you, and seek to be pleased in you more and more and more. In Jesus' name we pray and amen. Now, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, there's a lot of directions I could go here. I'm going to just, right out of the gate, I'm going to tell you what I'm not going to talk about. I am not going to talk about stars and angels and their connection because that will take me too far afield. Uh, the, the heavenly host is all over the Christmas story. Angels are coming and going, and there's the star. And what is the star? And is it the star the Chinese saw around 6 AD? Is it the planets converging like many people saw in the skies over the, the, the ancient Near East at about the same time? I'm not going to get into all that. We could also talk about Bethlehem and how it's the breadbasket how it's the, right, it's the city of bread, and lo, the, the bread of heaven, the man of heaven, descends into the bread basket to feed the world. All of these things I'm not going to talk about. What I'm going to talk about are these, these men, these magi. Now, your Bibles say wise men, but that's not the word in Greek. The word in Greek is magi. And in Septuagint, in writers like Philo and Josephus, they translate it as magicians, Wise men is not the most accurate translation. Now, I say magicians, and everyone's like, oh, no, here we go. Mike's going to go all Harry Potter on us. <laughs> right? Talk about my bloods and that kind of thing. But no, that's not what I mean by magicians. 
Now, in some cases, magi practice magical arts. In others, as referring to those Eastern priest sages who have come to find Christ, they research in great measure the mysterious and the unknown. They have embraced deep knowledge, though not untinged with superstition. They are very strange characters to us. We have a hard time categorizing them. But I think it's important to think of them like lore masters, like Gandalf, who studied history and mythology and science and wisdom literature, who could read the stars. Now, reading the stars is very strange to us as well as modern people. When I want to know where I'm going, I ask my phone. Right? My phone tells me. I do not look to the heavens. <laughs> I never go outside and think, oh, I need to get back to Bothell, and so I look in the sky, and I'm going to go that way. But there's something here about our, our being moderns that we don't understand. Our cosmology as modern people is not the cosmology of the Bible. We don't understand what the stars are or what they're for. In Genesis 1.14, at the very beginning, it says, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. So the lights were placed in the heavens as signs. The host of heaven, when you look up, up into the night sky, those lights are meant to be read like a book. Now, I have a book of ancient navigation. I, I love navigation. I love all things involving the sea. And I have this very ancient book of navigation, and it's a book full of ancient maps. And all of the maps are of the skies. So men used to get in boats and go hither and yon, following the stars. They could look up, and, <laughs> look up into the skies and say, oh, Sicily is that direction. Right? There's Sicily's star, and I will go in the direction of Sicily. So right out of the gate, the Magi, when they say they follow the star to, to Israel, we have a hard time understanding it. But if I'm, st if I'm on the coast of Portugal, looking out to the Atlantic, I can say, oh, Madeira's star lies there, and I can go to Madeira because I see its star. And that way of just simply talking about directions is very, very strange to us. That's not how we do it. Right? If we... <laughs> We get on I-90, and we go east. We don't look into the skies and say, oh, there's Montana's star, and I will follow it. That's not how we think about the world. Now, the word mage, magi, is translated as magicians. Uh, it's where we get the English word magic. Matthew is probably using the word in a more general sense for the learned court advisors of Mesopotamia and Persia, whose work involves studying ancient and sa sacred texts as well as watching for movements of planets and stars that might be interpreted as divine messages. They were men who, who were very learned. Right? Imagine somebody having like eight PhDs from applied sciences to PhDs in astrophysics to uh, Plato. Right? These men knew a lot about a lot of things. And that's why they, they were wise and they were advisors to kings, because they couldn't just read the stars. They could read the movements of men and history and and. If you know, these are the kinds of people that usually get a job on Fox News, right? Some expert in Middle Eastern whatever comes on there and starts telling us what he thinks is going to happen and why. Because he studied the subject for many years, and he, can, he assumes that he can, he can tell what direction things are going. In, in, mo in the modern world, we see these kinds of people still, and, and they are still influencing policy. They're influencing us. They're influencing what we think about things. And that's what these men are. They are men with a great deal of learning who influence the authorities in the ancient Near East. Now, they believed the affairs of history were reflected in the movements of stars. This is a lost art. It's very 
very difficult to understand exactly what that means. I can, I, I can talk about the fact that you can use the stars as navigation, but looking up uh, into the heavens to predict the next presidential election seems a little far-fetched to me. But it's what they could do confidently and competently. How did these men know that a new king was coming to a country of which they did not belong? And how do they, why, why right? If, when I hear there's a new election in France, I don't think, you know what we're going to do is travel there and worship the guy. Well, how is a new king coming into Israel cause these men to say, oh, we need to go and lie down at his feet and worship him? Because <laughs> not worship God on his behalf, but go and worship him. It's a very, very strange story, this whole account. Now, help us, we, we look outside of scripture, and the Magi appear in various ancient texts as wise counselors who provide rulers with divine guidance. The historian Herodotus mentions the Magi as a priestly caste in the kingdoms of Medea and Persia. As the religion in Persia at the time was Zoroastrianism, Herodotus' Magi were probably Zoroastrian priests. So they weren't just court advisors, they actually led the religious practices of those nations. Herodotus, another, uh, this ancient historian, together with another, Plutarch, and another, Strabo, which is the greatest name of an ancient historian ever, Strabo, they all suggest that the Magi were partly responsible for ritual and cultic life. They were supervising sacrifices, they were supervising prayers, they were supervising education, and they were partly responsible as the royal advisors. Now, Daniel, in the Septuagint, is referred to as a Magi of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you go back and you look at his story, he was chosen because he was very wise and very intelligent and capable of learning a great deal of information. And he was essentially sent to the university at the time, and he became an advisor to the leaders of Babylon. When they had dreams and they could not interpret them, they would send for Daniel. When they wanted to know what they should do and what to re- how should we react to this, what should we do, the leaders went to Daniel, who was a magi. He was a magician. Now... <laughs> modern American fundy Christians were like, come on, right? Get, I, this is, we, we all hate Harry Potter and we hate these stories because we, we think we're supposed to hate magic. But Daniel was a magician. Now, the, the thing is, we all think, when we think magicians, we think, right, the wizard from Sword in the Stone, if you guys remember this old Disney cartoon, right, the, the weird old guy who has a wand and can do spells and and he's sort of strange, and not, you're not really sure if he's good or bad. But magi are people like Daniel. And if you want to know what a magi does, go and read the book of Daniel. The historian, Xenophon, tells us that magi were the interpreters of the gods to Cyrus the Great, King Darius III, Alexander the Great. All of them had magi. And the, and the better magi you were, the higher up the food chain you would go. And I think this leads into the confusion about these men being kings. Because they come, and we're, we're used to calling them the three kings. But they weren't themselves kings. They were used to going to courts and, and giving advice to kings. That's why they're welcome in Herod's court. But they themselves were very powerful, very powerful men. Now... When we are talking about magic, I keep referencing Harry Potter here, there's something about, ma- about magicians from the ancient and medieval world that we don't understand. And as usual, I'm going to bring my Oxford Don friend, C.S. Lewis, into the room so that he can help us to understand this. Because one of the things he really wanted to, people, his students and his readers to understand was that magicians in the ancient world and in the medieval world were very different than what we think. Now, C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man said this, There is something which unites magic and applied science, 
while separating both from the wisdom of earlier ages. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality, and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. The solution is a technique, and both in the practice of this technique are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious, such as digging up and mutilating the dead. Now, ancient people like the Magi in the story in Matthew were seeking virtue. They're seeking wisdom. They're seeking the Lord. They're seeking to obey God, right? They're using their applied knowledge to what? Worship the Lord. Magicians in the Middle Ages and scientists, applied scientists and today, want to control their environment. Now, and this is, again, I think very challenging to us, but I want you to think about it just a little bit. It seems fantastical, but a biologist who's working with aborted fetal cells is closer to a magician in the medieval sense than a scientist. And and this is is where the, the train can possibly leave the tracks for us. So an aerospace engineer like Nate... Working at Boeing, if he takes right, if he if he if he takes his applied understanding, what is he doing? He's God has created gravity. He's made it so that man cannot fly. So we have this magician in our in our midst, Nate, who goes to work and figures out how to put you into a steel box and hurl you through space, defying all the rules as we understand them. So in the ancient world, if Nate walks in and he shows you the plane, right, he goes back to 800, and he goes to France and he shows you what he's working on, everyone there would have been like, oh, you are a magician. You're amazing. And it's likewise with Eric, our foot physician. If he goes back in the ancient world and he puts somebody under and opens up their leg and works on it and sews up and the person doesn't die, everyone would have been like, look at this magician. This is amazing. And in applied sciences in the modern sense is what a magician in the medieval and ancient world would have been. There are people who are trying to control their environment using their knowledge. Now, there are astrophysicists working at the University of Minnesota, Center of Science, Technology, and Environmental Policy. I'm going to say that again because who comes up with these names? They are terrible at naming things. Astrophysicists at the University of Minnesota, Center of Science, Technology, and Environmental Policy. So these are literally men who read the stars and advise the government on how, what kind of car you ought to drive. And if you want to know what the Magi were like, that is what they are like. Right? What is an astrophysicist but someone who reads the stars? He comes up with mathematical equations. And, and, and why are they advising us in environmental policy? <laughs> we think this, this stuff is, you know, we think of magicians, and we do. We think of Voldemort and his funny nose and his wands and everything. But if you go down to the University of Minnesota, there's plenty of magicians working there trying to advise the government and what you should, shouldn't drive. There really is nothing new under the sun. Now, this designation of magi as wise men is not entirely misguided. I just think it's misleading. I think they translated that because they're uncomfortable using the word magician, frankly, because the guys who are interpreting the Bible and writing it in English for us don't want to have to explain what they mean because they think a modern reader is going to read that and think you're a nut, just like they, they won't translate the word unicorn as unicorn, but I digress. <laughs> now, we find other magi in, in, in the Bible, and it helps us to understand who these magi and Matthew are. In Acts chapter 8, there is Simon Magus, a Samaritan who practices magic. 
And, and we talked about this before. There were, when, when the Jews went around the world, right, as, as they got dispersed, people thought that, that they could somehow, because they served the God who spoke the world in being, that they could control the environment because they're Jews. Think about even now the myths about the Jews, right? They're secretly controlling everything. And there's all these stories about them, as if they have some sort of magical power to run the bank covering the whole world. I don't know how exactly anyone would pull that off, but apparently Jews are super magical. And in the ancient world, Jewish people could, if they were cynical and wanted to get rich, set themselves up as magicians, right? You come in with the funny clothes and the funny words, like a witch doctor almost. And that's what Simon Magus was. He's said to have amazed the people by his acts of magic. No indication is given as to whether his works were trickery or if he was drawing on some sort of evil power, but he was the one who tried to buy the Holy Spirit. He's like, oh, that? Look at that power. <laughs> and he, he tried to give money to the apostles and say, oh, give me some of this magic that you have. Because look how you're going around and doing what? What are they doing by the power of the Holy Spirit? They are controlling their environment. They say to people, stand up and walk. They say to people, you can now see. They're, they're doing what appears to be magic. And when we think of miracles, this is why I like C.S. Lewis, he helps us to understand what is a miracle. It's the ultimate power over our environment. Right? The God who spoke everything into being is the most powerful being, and he absolutely controls his environment. He can walk on water. He can say to a tree, you're never going to grow fruit again. He can take a loaf and a fish and feed 5,000 people. This is who Jesus is. And, and this, all of these categorically, I think, throw us a little bit. Did you ever think of God, the Father, being the ultimate magician? Well, if we're talking about the fact that it's controlling your environment, there is no greater magician in the world. In Acts chapter 13, also, there's a Jewish man named Bar-Jesus, and and some English versions translate that as the sorcerer. And Bar-Jesus is soundly condemned by Paul. There's no evidence that he practices as a sorcerer, but that's what they call him, the sorcerer. And, And all of these men are magi. So what you find here, and in other texts outside of the Bible, is that magi aren't necessarily always bad or good. They can be either. So then who are these magi who come seeking Jesus? Who comes to Herod's court? Are they good magi or bad magi? What are they using their knowledge for? What are they attempting to accomplish? Furthermore, the magi connect Matthew's account with the Exodus. For Herod is a greater pharaoh, as we will see, Pharaoh was subjugating the Jews before the Exodus, and he was slaughtering the little babies. And what is Herod going to do? Herod is another Pharaoh, right? Judea is not a kingdom in the Old Testament. Judea is a creation of the powers of this world. And Herod is the king not of Israel, but of Judea. Judea is a false nation, just like all the other false nations that need to be overthrown and turned over. And he now is the Pharaoh subjugating the people of Israel under his thumb, and and Jesus is coming as a greater Moses to deliver them. Now, if you go back to the Exodus story, you actually find court magicians there. And this this is, right, Moses comes in with his stick, and he is a greater sorcerer than the sorcerers of Egypt. This is what we read in Exodus chapter 7, verse 10 through 13. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. So Moses is given a staff that turns into a snake. And it turns into a snake because why? Because God said 
do this, and this is what will happen. Now, how do these court magicians of Egypt conjure the same trick? It's very, very mysterious how they're able to do this. They are, they are somehow able to tap into a power that's able to change their environment. This is a story that occurred. This is not mythology. These men are sorcerers who can turn sticks into snakes. Now, if you met a man who had a stick in his hand, and he threw it on the ground, and it turned into a snake, how would you treat that man? Right? Would, would you think, oh, that guy's just a nobody? Or would you be like, that guy's terrifying? That guy's terrifying, and I'm going to follow him. I'm going to listen to him. He, I'm going to put him in charge. But what I love is that Moses' snake eats the other snakes. He's like, you may be able to do the same trick, but my snake is greater than yours. Right? It's not that one uses magic and one doesn't. It's that one person's magic is stronger and more powerful because he's serving the living God. The living God, who, when he turns a snake or a stick into a snake, that snake is the best strongest, most powerful snake in the world, okay? And no other snakes can beat him. The magi of Egypt can control their environment through their arts like God's prophet, but their magic wasn't as powerful as Moses. And, and this, I think, parents, okay? I'm going to go back to Harry Potter. I don't understand necessarily why so many Christian fundamentalist parents hate Harry Potter. My problem with Harry Potter is not that they're sorcery, but that everybody's magic has the same source. There's just magic, and you're either good at it or you're not. Whereas in the Bible, right, if you have power given to you by God, your God is stronger than their gods. So if you're writing this story from a Christian perspective, Harry Potter should have been able to whoop everybody because he served the living God or not. Right? That's the problem with stories where they're using magic. Right? As, as if there's some book in the back, and if, if we both study it, we can either be really good at it or not. When God wants to prove that he is, in fact, who he says he is, he gives people the ability to do remarkable things. How is that Moses can hold his hands up, right? When he, when he holds his hands up later on in the account of Exodus, Israel is defeating their enemies. And when his hands fall down, they, they don't defeat their enemies. So then they get two guys to hold up their hands. Now, if, you, if you, I've studied enough military history, that is never a strategy I would think of. You know what we'll do is get Napoleon out here, and we'll lift his arms up into the sky, and we will defeat our enemies. Now, when God does something like that with Moses, what is he trying to prove? That Moses is, is, is remarkable? That Israel is remarkable? No, here, you want, me, you, want, you want to defeat your enemies? I'm going to do something silly like this. Go out there and raise your hands in the air. And, oh, look, you're a man. You can't even hold your hands up all day long. So here, we're going to get some people to help you hold your hands up. And as long as they do that, you will defeat your enemies. And then we, who serve this God, go into the world, and we think we're going to defeat the world and the powers and the principalities and the progressives using the same methodology, the same magic that they do. When, when we have to think, we're serving a God who does things differently. Whatever the version of go, sending Moses out to hold his hands up is the thing that we need in 2023. Now, what is that? I, I'm not going to pretend to know. But we're looking often to the wrong things to deliver us, right? <laughs> in the story of Jesus coming to earth, his birth, the last thing anybody would have expect expected were magi coming from a foreign country to be the ones who want to worship the Messiah of Israel. God does strange things. He does what we do not expect. He does it in ways that we do not expect. And, and I think we, we read the Bible, and there's so much of this kind of stuff, and we, we don't understand it, and so we ignore it. The supernatural, the miraculous, the other 
worldliness of God, sometimes we miss it because it's so strange. And what the Magi do is they come at the very beginning of Jesus' advent, and they show us that this is not kings like other kings. This is, this is a person who is not just a person. This is a person, unlike any other person who's ever been born, who's going to accomplish things unlike what anyone else has accomplished, and he's going to do it in the most unexpected ways. That's what this story should tell us. So then when we go into the world and we have things to overcome, right? we're looking to heaven to get us out of things, out of the situation we're in, to guide us, to instruct us, to bless us in ways that we can hardly imagine. Our expectations are not shaped by stories like this like they ought to be. In Matthew, these magicians, these wise men, these foreigners have come from the east to revere the king of Israel. That's why they have come. Their knowledge, however, whatever the source of it is, is used for one thing. Get me as close to the king of Israel as I can possibly be. And, and in this story, <laughs> that is the lesson for us. They have come from the east to lay all of their wisdom, all of their power at the feet of the true king. Now, it says they arrived from the east. That's very vague. I think that's a cultural reference, not necessarily a You know, it is a direction. But when we say the east and the west, it's very common for us. What is the west? Well, the west is, is the tradition that's been handed down to us that you can find in the great books. Right? That, that's western culture. And so when they say the east, I think it's not a right? If you look on a map, there's no east. That's not a country. But they've come from the east, and I think it's not important where they came from. I don't think it's important how many of them there are. It's not important what their names are. But this is another thing that people get very confused by. Are these men believers or not? Are these three men, these magi who come from afar, are, do they, are they believers? Well, it's helpful to know that at the time, there was in Arabia countries that were fully Jewish. Yemen, believe it or not, was a country then, and they were believers. They were full of, of Jewish converts, and, and they had magi, just, just like all the kingdoms in, in the ancient Near East had them, and they believed in the God of Israel. They believed in the, the Bible of Israel, and they did all the way until the 6th century AD. Right? They were largely a Jewish country. So what you have are men who are faithful believers in this country, who are powerful, because that's what magi are in society, and they are, they are now using their knowledge to see that God is about to do something remarkable. Now, Christmas traditions have incorporated some legendary details, and I just want to dispense with some of those because, frankly, they're just annoying. <laughs> right? I, when, when you think of these gentlemen, I, I want to dispel some of the mythology that we have on Christmas cards. Christmas traditions invariably include three, likely because of the three gifts. The Eastern Church, uh, our Orthodox brothers, they always set the number at 12, simply because 12 is very important, an important number. But there's no proof of either. Okay? Just because there's three gifts doesn't mean they're three men. They just brought, they brought very specific gifts, which I'm going to get to. Also, their names are sometimes given as Melchor, Casper, and Balthazar. Now, those sound like magicians, don't they? I actually kind of like that because it just sounds like Balthazar sounds more like a magician. 
But that's, we don't know. That, that is something that was just made up at one point. It was a guess, at, and it became, this is sometimes these guesses become traditions, and we don't know the difference. But we don't know their names. Matthew does not mention their names. He doesn't mention the actual nation. He doesn't mention how many of them. Tertullian, a great theologian of the patristic age, was concerned to line up Matthew's account with prophecies of various Old Testament texts, making them kings. But there's also no proof that they're kings. The Magi, they were high-ranking, like Joseph or Daniel. They would be wealthy. They would be at the highest level of authority. They would have ready access to whatever court they wanted to go to. Right? Just like diplomats. If a diplomat came from Italy to the United States, who would we take him to see? Right? The manager at Burger King? Or we would take him to see the president? Right? They, get, they have a calling car that gets them into places that you and I do not get to go. And the Magi are like that. They don't go to King Herod because they're kings. They go to King Herod because that's, that's who they advise. That's who they hobnob with. Now, the astronomical phenomenon, I, the star in the heavens... All I'm going to say about this, all I'm going to say about that is this. It's not a normal star. Okay, I, there are lots of stars that move. There are stars that come and go. All of a sudden, we find new ones all the time. There were several astronomical events during, during the first 10 years of, age, uh, you know, of, of that time, and we don't know what it's attached to. I will say that usually stars do not come to rest on house. If Jupiter suddenly descended upon Bothell and rested above my house, we'd all be dead right now. Right? I mean, so whatever the star is, it's not what we would normally consider a star. Now, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, we read this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now Herod the Great was a half-Jew, half-Edomite, who through accommodation to the Romans ascended to power as a client ruler in Israel in 37 BC. He was a a, a useful stooge. (laughs) And he came to power not because he's great, but because he was willing to work with the Romans. Okay, so he's the king of Judea. And now these men come looking for the new king who's been born. And Herod, obviously, is very upset by this. Now, he's not a real Jew, so he doesn't actually know the scriptures himself well enough to be like, oh, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. <laughs> he has to get all the scribes and, and, the, and the Pharisees together for that. But he is frightened. And Herod was well known for killing his own family members in order to protect his throne. And so what do you think he's going to do when some strange, powerful men who are very wealthy come from far away and say, well, where's the new king? He's, he's not going to take it well. He's not going to take it well. Herod, despite his pagan background and powerful influence in the Babylonian and Persian courts, these magi recognize and worship the Christ child for who he is. That's why they're there. And, and they don't know the lay of the land. I think this is very interesting. If if, if they knew more about Herod, I think it tells us something about who they are and where they came from. If they knew anything about Herod, I would not walk up to this guy and say, oh, where's the new king? Because he killed his own family members. And, and everyone in Israel knows it. That's why the people in Jerusalem are terrified. Because the, <laughs> just imagine the scribes like, wait, wait, who's here? Magi? What do they say to him? A new king? Oh, my goodness gracious. This is terrible. Who, he's going to go. And what, what does Herod do? He goes and slaughters a bunch of people. And everyone is expecting him to do this. And so I think it tells us something about how far the Magi actually traveled. 
They don't know who they're dealing with. And they take him at his word. Right? He, he meets with them in secret. He gets information out of them. And he says, oh, hey, you go. You find out where he is. And I'll come worship him too. They're, they're taken in at first by him. He was, he was a liar, a murderer, like his father, Satan. He was an evil, evil, evil man. And his response is the response that you would expect from rulers like him. He doesn't want, right? I mean, think about it. If it think about it from his point of view. If there is a God, and he has in fact promised a redeemer and ruler of Israel, do you think you're going to be able to kill him? Right? So there's this weird belief-unbelief that Herod has. He's terrified by this news. But my, one of my questions is, why does, he believe, why does he give any credit to it? Why does he give any credit to it? It's because he's simply terrified of any kind of pushback against his authority. He hates anybody standing up to him. He hates anybody trying to push back. He hates anybody trying to steal his power. In fact, he's dying at this point. He's very, very sick. He doesn't live long after this. And so his, his, his calling card at the end of his career is to slaughter a bunch of babies. Like, what kind of man is that? Herod reveals his superficial knowledge of Scripture by having to ask the religious authorities, and this is one of the most baffling things to me in all of the New Testament. They know exactly where the Messiah will be born. Because sometimes we overdo the fact, right? we talk about... The religious leaders in Israel know nothing about the Messiah or what he's actually going to be like, and except in two sentences, they say, well, where's this Messiah going to be born? And they'll go, Bethlehem. So clearly there was some realistic expectation of what God was going to do if they could guess what city he was going to be born in. But do they run along with the Magi and go with him? They say, oh, the king of Israel, the true king of Israel, the one who will deliver us from Herod, the one who God long promised us, you know, you know that he's born, and so we'll go with you now and worship this God. No. They have knowledge, but it, it does not result in any action on their part. Herod is a false shepherd, and to make it clear, he now tries to use the Magi in a conspiracy against the actual king, the living God, Jesus Christ. It says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 7 through 9, And Herod's, Herod summoned all the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This is a straightforward example of Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage, the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, Herod is demonstrating their straightforward atheism, right? The two tenets of atheism is there is no God and I hate him. So he clearly doesn't really believe that this king that the Magi are telling him about are actually, is actually who he says it is. And yet, why does he want him dead? And this is the kind of anger unbelief always has against God. He doesn't exist, and if I could get my hands on him, I would murder him. And he sends soldiers out. Any, any, any true... Um, 
crash that you're going to have at Christmas time. We have little baby Jesus and his mama there and some donkeys. And, and, we, and a lot of families put these out. And, and what I like to do when we used to have one in my house is I get all the G.I. Joe figures I can with guns, and I put them there in, in, with the crash. Because Herod's soldiers are a part of this story. He doesn't believe in God, but he hates him. And he's willing to go out and slaughter a bunch of children. Now, on the flip side, why, why, would, that, why would God allow such a thing? And it's foreshadowing in this whole story. The first martyrs of the Lord Jesus Christ, after his descent, are a bunch of children who don't know what's going on. And that is a very sobering fact. Because the God that we serve, right, he is good, but he is not safe. He's not safe. Any association with him, even if you don't know that he's there, right, any association with him is very, very, very dangerous. And this is something we also overlook in this story. To simply be born in the same town as him was worthy of execution. Right? And, and the Magi, right, what do they do after they actually come and worship him? They don't go back to Jerusalem. They don't go back to Herod. Why? Because they don't, they, now their association with Jesus has marked them as men worthy of death. It is a dangerous thing to be associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it? Or is it? Right? It's, it hasn't been for many years. Is it dangerous now? Right? I, I, right now, how, how, does, how does a religious exemption in this state work? Do they take that seriously? Is our association with D- Jesus becoming increasingly dangerous? Yes. Why? Because it always was. We, we simply we did not understand the grace we were living under. We did not understand the goodness that we were living under. Now, the Magi at this point, they proceed. They're here for one purpose. They're not... Get away from me, Herod. I'm done with you. I don't care to hear anything from your scribes who clearly know where the guy's born but don't want to come with us. They proceed to their true task. Matthew 2, 9 through 12. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, and it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, how wise are these men? How learned are they? Who falls down at a baby in a woman's lap and worships it? How did these men know? Right? And, and this is where, is it their great learning? Is it their great wisdom that they acquired as mages? Is that, is that where it came from? For them to come, right? And there is a wisdom that comes from only from God that you can't learn in books. There is a wisdom that comes down from heaven that rests upon us that is a gift from God that you cannot acquire in any other way. Right? There's, it's not like there's magi lined up around the block, show us the, the Christ child. They see in this baby on a lap the living God. And that is a gift from heaven. And so what they do is they lay now at his feet gifts. And all the gifts that they lay at his feet are associated in some way with worship. Frankincense and myrrh are very expensive. They are used um, to perfume the inside of the tabernacle. Gold is used to cover all of the utensils in the tabernacle. And in the great um, 
temple of the Lord. And so everything that they're doing, everything they lay at his feet has to do with worship. This now is the tabernacle from the Lord. This now is the temple of the Lord. And what we're going to adorn him with, what we're going to lay at his feet, are those things necessary for him to be both. This is now the, the center of worship. This is now the center of wisdom. This is now the purpose of all knowledge. They have all the knowledge in the known world at that time. And what is it used for? Getting close to and worshiping the living God. Now, what I want to, how I want to close this, right? It's not, not with prophecies from Numbers chapter 24, because in, in a, there, there is a prophecy there. There's a, a prophet named Balaam, who's not an Israelite, who says that one day a star will come. And these wise men know that. And, and again, that it'll take me hours to explain how they came to understand that. But this is what I want to talk about. Christ is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. This is a political statement. This is a, viol- a statement of violence on tyrants. This is a statement of violence on unbelief. To come to this Judea and to say to the king of Judea, show me the king of Israel, is a political violent statement. Now, we have been taught for several generations now that our religion is a spiritual matter. And people point to Jesus saying, well, he says his kingdom is not of this world. And I would like to go to that moment. (laughs) Okay, It's not of this world in the sense that its source is in this world. Its source is heaven. Its source comes from outside because the transcendent God proceeds and follows after the creation. He is all the way around it. He is the thing outside of time, outside of space, outside of creation that made everything that you see and everything, every one of us that are here. So, but when he comes into this world, it affects the movement of stars. So does the king, whose kingdom is not of this world, have an effect on this world? His coming down from the heavens, the, the stars themselves respond. He, he descends as a little baby, and what happens? Men begin to move. It has an effect on this world. And, and so far, people want to secularize politics. They want to say, politics has no place in church. Politics has no place in, in the Bible. Politics has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Either Herod is the king, or Jesus is the king. It can't be both. And Herod is like Caesar. Herod is like Pharaoh. Herod is like all the kings of this, of this world. And, and what the Magi are there to say is, listen, no, you may be the king, but there is a higher king. There is an emperor over you, and we will submit to you, and we will obey you as long as you obey him. See, this is something that we have lost. This is, I talk about we're fighting the culture war. We don't understand our own culture. Christians are the most dangerous kinds of citizens. Because either our obedience to good kings rises to the level of obedience to God himself, right? Because in Romans 13, it says, obey the king. They are there to do just, justice. They are there to bear the sword. And as long as they're bearing the sword to do justice, we will follow him like we follow God. But if you're not a good king, our rebellion, and our, right? our rebellion will rise to the level of we serve no king but Christ. It is a dangerous thing to be a Christian. It is a dangerous thing to say that Jesus is Christ. And it hasn't been 
for a long time. Because Christendom was here in the West for so long, we've all forgotten what it meant. You, kings used to, right, they used to swear fealty to the Lord Jesus when they were put, putting crowns on their heads because they understood they were not the highest authority in the world. And now we're like, well, I, you can't use a Bible to make an oath in court. That's, right? I mean, you're going to offend all the Muslims, right? And the, you're, you're, you're making a political statement. And the Magi come from how far to say to the king of Judea, you're not actually the king. <laughs> and then what does he do? He starts murdering people. All the religious leaders, all the guys who have their PhDs in Calvinism are sitting around going, well, yeah, we know exactly, we can explain. We have all the knowledge. Bethlehem. It doesn't cause them to do anything. It's just knowledge. And then you have these three, or however many there are, (laughs) coming from far, using all of their knowledge, all of their power, all of their wealth to get as close to Jesus as they can to worship him in joy and reverence. We do not live in a time where the world is friendly, okay? The world is not friendly towards us. This is a blue state from top to bottom, left to right, as as deep down as you can go, and it is becoming increasingly dangerous to say that you are a Christian and that there is no king but Christ. And so we are either going to be the Magi, or we're going to be the religious leaders in Jerusalem, or we're going to be Herod. And so what are you going to be in 2023? Because you think the last five years have been something. Giddy up. Ladies and gentlemen, put your boots on and tie them up because there is a lot more coming. And, and this is the thing. We either serve the living God with everything we have, everything we know, everything we are, or we do not. And, and when you say, I am for Christ and no other king, you are making a political statement that is going to be considered violent. To say that, a, right, to see a, a woman who is trying everything she can possibly do to be a man, and you say, that is a woman, is that a statement of violence? It is in this world now. You, you are harming that person. You are a dangerous person. And we're either going to be dangerous, like the Magi are. We're going to be dangerous, like all those sweet, innocent little babies who didn't know what in the world was going on. That is what we should expect. It is a dangerous thing to be here right now. It is a dangerous thing to say that Christ is king. And we're either going to, to reverently and joyfully serve him and lay it all at his feet. Or what? The Jewish leaders, how long did they last? What happened to them? What happened to their kingdom? Where's Herod now? Christmas is so full sometimes of sentimentality. But I love the fact that we, we, we that Christmas spans the two years. Everybody's making such a big deal out of the fact that it's New Year's. But Christmas covers both last year and this year, right? We're, we're going into January when everybody else is looking for resolutions about their weight, right? We can barely get the pants on because Christmas was so good to us, right? And we all got the cars with the three wise men on the camels. They don't have any servants or no tent, whatever. It's just three dudes apparently who went hundreds of miles by themselves with no food. I, I just I, I saw one of these Christmas cards recently. I was like, and now I've been studying this. I'm like, there should be like 50 other people there, like carrying at least water. <laughs> and, and I know that we can be extreme. I know, I know, and we ought to be. 
This, this is, right? Go home. Christmas is over. The Lord Jesus descended, and it is a dangerous fact. And, and the kings of this world are either going to kiss him or they're, they're going to be crushed. We either take refuge in him, come what may, risk it all on who he says he is or not. And, and, and I've said this before, and this is what, how I, I will honestly, I promise, end it. If all it meant was that he came and died, that was all that was required of him, then why not let Herod finish the job in Matthew 2? But the fact that he had to then go and, and, and grow up and have a ministry and have a life and serve Israel and go through everything that he went through for 35 years or so and die the way that he did, that means something, right? And it's instructive to us, and we need it. We need to look at it. We need to understand it. We need to understand who he is and how he's reacting to people and what's important to him and what's not important to him. The life that he lived is as important as the fact that he died. And, and how? How are we going to go into this world where it's so dangerous, where we're making these politically violent statements like you are a man, how are we going to go out and do that? Well, the, the story goes on. Okay? <laughs> Christmas covers both of the years. It, it starts in 2022. It ends in 2023 because this story goes on. It's not attached to a year. It is a life. It's a lifestyle. It, it's who and what we are, not just while we're sitting here, but while, while we're out in the world. And so you're here, and I'm, t- I'm telling you, do you want food for this week? Do you want strength for this coming week? Do you want understanding? Do you want purpose? The living God did not remain in heaven, but descended as a child. And he, he lived. And man, did he live. And you go forth and do likewise. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.